Are you a hunter or an outdoor enthusiast? Take your love for firearms to the next level with Goat Guns. Our miniatures are an ideal addition to your hunting gear or cabin decor. Each model is meticulously crafted, capturing the essence of legendary firearms. Celebrate your passion for the outdoors by displaying these stunning pieces. With Goat Guns, you can showcase your love for hunting and firearms in a unique and artistic way. Explore our collection now and embrace your outdoor spirit at GoatGuns.com. My guest this week is the Conservative MP for Bury South and member of the House of Commons Education Select Committee, Christian Wakeford. Christian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Thank you. Over the last 18 months, we've seen the government make a massive shift within the Conservative Party towards favouring a bigger role for the state and higher taxation levels. Is the Conservative Party still Conservative? I guess that's the, 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 the billion dollar question or, or, or the, the 300 and the what, 60 billion dollar question. <laughs> I, I think in, in short, we've reacted to what was needed at, at the time. Um, I mean, I, I think back to when COVID regulations were first brought in and I, I wasn't able to vote on them myself because I was isolating with COVID. I, I think if we hadn't have done a lot of the, the regulations, the support that we did at the time, we'd probably be really suffering now. Um, I, I'm not going to say we got everything right. If I did, I'd, I'd be lying. Um, I think we've broadly gone in the right direction, uh, but I, I, I think we've we have made mistakes. I, I think when we look back at some of the uh, regulations we brought in, they weren't right. They didn't make sense, and in doing so, they devalued uh, the ones that, that did make sense, and, and we're ultimately there to protect us. I think of. Of the, the 10 p.m. curfew, and then we saw those uh, scenes of people playing cricket in the streets in London, and it, it clearly wasn't working. It, you know, they, they looked at Belgium, and unfortunately, we have a different culture. You know, our, our drinking culture here is, you know, you you will you will drink, and, and then you'll go home, and forcing everyone out all at the same time. Just it, it, it wasn't right. And then we we had Scotch egg gates, which I'd, I'd rather try to forget. But these are the things that people remember, and. You know, when, when we're trying to say, well, you know, it, it's still hands, face, face, and, you know, we still need to do your social distancing, still need to wear a mask, and uh, as someone who wears glasses and has a beard, you know, I don't like wearing a mask because it's, it's not the most comfortable thing, but it, it was the right thing to do. But all of these help, help to, to muddy the waters in terms of communication. So when you look at Scotland, for example, Nicola Sturgeon's come out of the, the you know, pandemic you know, arguably a lot stronger in, in herself and her position. And has she done anything different to what we would have done? No. You know, if anything, she's, she's done it slightly later. The only difference is she's been much, much clearer with the communication. Um, obviously, we'll, we'll try to ignore talking about Dominic Cummings because I don't want to get angry. Um, but I think the, the regulations, the laws, the changes we made in, in, in creating a, a bigger, a wider state were needed at the time. I don't necessarily think they're needed now. Um, so I, I think it's time the, the Conservative Party uh, reclaims its title as being fiscally responsible. It, you know, we reclaim our title for being caring and, and not necessarily rolling back the state, but we believe in low taxes and 
small states, and, and that's right. Well, on the, the size of the state, I mean, there have been a number of suggestions that say that Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party have moved in this direction to support a wider role for the states within society in order to retain a large number of those red wall seats like yours in Bury South that were won in 2019. Do you agree with that assessment? No, um, I, I think if anything, we, we've talked a lot about le- leveling up and its biggest strength is its biggest weakness in that it, it means nothing in, and in meaning nothing, it means everything to, to everyone. Um, for me, it's, it's education, it's, it's not a shiny new building, you know, it's skills, it's training, it's making, making sure that you know, we are achieving social mobility and we're improving life chances. And if we're not, well, I'm sorry, we're, we're not leveling up a country. It's not about creating um, civil service jobs in Darlington or in Stoke. And you know, I, I know very many people who are, who are happy with that, but that isn't leveling up. It's just rearranging the, the pieces on, on a chessboard. You know, it's, it's meaningful investment, but it's investment in infrastructure. It's infrastructure in, you know, in, in our future and uh, ultimately our, our children and our, and our young people. That's what leveling up is. But in terms of the, the big state, I don't think that's necessarily what the Red Wall seats have been crying out for. They've been crying out for attention. You know, for far too many years, they've felt neglected and forgotten. And you know, we only need to look at Hartlepool as a prime example. And having been there with, with all the, you know, the, the big piece of, of Labour history, either representing there or nearby, and I'm thinking of Mandelson, I'm thinking of Blair in, in neighbouring Sedgefield. What what did Labour do for those seats in the northeast when you know they were the heartlands? Not a lot. You know, po- poverty was still there. E- educational attainment was still low. And, and the, these were seats that, that arguably should have been thriving because that's where their leaders were. Uh, I, I think if, if there's one thing we can say we achieved, it, it was actually a legacy for, for David Cameron. I, I don't mean the green sill uh, issue to prove that he was a crap lobbyist. I'm talking about the big society. And it failed at the time, and it's it's arguably taken COVID to actually create that big society with everyone being cautious and, and looking after their neighbour, looking after those who are most vulnerable. That's what we should be proud about. That's what we should be trying to maintain. And you know, there are a few silver linings, and it's what we can do to to, to grab a hold of that and and, and to make sure that you know, we don't lose that goodwill, we don't lose uh, all that time and effort that people have been putting in just to do the right thing. Um, so that's, that's arguably the, you know, the, the biggest achievement and, and what the red wall seats, in my view, are wanting. It's not just a case of here's some money, um, you know, here's, here's a, a wider, you know, bigger state. You know, most people, when, when you speak to them, think there are far too many councillors, far too many MPs, far too many politicians, and, and they could do a better job themselves. And, and in some cases, they're probably right. Um, but I, I, I think really it's it's empowerment. It's making sure that they can do what they what they're capable of. It's, it's about equality of opportunity. We, we've spoken about for far too many years, and it's about making sure that opportunity does reach everyone. It, you know, to, to quote Robert Alphen, you know, we are the party of aspiration. We're the party of a ladder. Let people climb it. So you you mentioned there the ideas around the the big society and the, those features of retaining those red wall seats that you mentioned there about aspiration about rewarding hard work there. So a, a lot of the pandemic has really made people reassess a number of their their values and ideas and in particular around the role of the state. So as a result of that, what what type of conservative would you describe yourself as? I 
I wouldn't necessarily pigeonhole myself in, into one category or another. And I, I think it's very dependent upon what the actual issue is. You know, on, on some issues, I'd, I'd say I'm um, very Thatcherite and others I'm very socially liberal and a uh, Cameroon, if you will. And you know, where, where it's uh, equality in terms of gay marriage, et cetera, 100% supportive. And you know, we, we need to be going further and making sure that we you know, finally address the issue of banning conversion therapy, which is quite blatantly just evil. Um, but in, in terms of what conservative, you know, I'm a, I'd say I'm a compassionate conservative. I, I, I care about aid, I care about education, I, I care about social mobility. Um, but if, if you judge us by, um, by what we do to, to help the most vulnerable, that's what we, we should be talking about. And again, it comes down to that aspiration and, and helping people up as opposed to dragging people down to make sure we're all at the same level. You, you were a part of that historic 2019 intake of MPs from that incredible general election campaign. And there, there were so many different factors going on within that campaign. How did you feel on election night, seeing all those conservative gains right across the country and across the north and then seeing your own successful results come in? Uh, that was a, a night I will long remember and partly try to forget in equal measures. And it it, it was insane. Uh, I mean, I, I remember all, all, all through the day going from one street to, to another and seeing nothing but Labour activists. And, you know, I, I know we were Momentum's number one target in the Northwest. Uh, so I think we had activists from Lancashire, from Liverpool, from all over Greater Manchester. And then I got to the Jewish community and there, there was no labour activists there and I'd literally be having people walk, walking out the houses or getting out the cars to come wish me luck, have a selfie and, and uh, you know, shake my hand and, you know, I'd be knocking on doors and I'd be invited for selfies with the kids and uh, in terms of trying to knock on as many doors as you can do, that's really challenging when everyone wants a photo. But I, I got back and saw the exit poll and, yeah, I, I think it was trying to pick my mouth up from the floor. It was, uh, it was jaw-dropping. It, it you know, it was kind of everything that everyone had hoped for. But then I saw that Berry South was predicted a 75% chance of a, of a Labour hold. Uh, so trying to think, well, you know, we're winning seats I've never even heard of. And, you know, we, we've thrown a lot here and, you know, being a target seat and everything, it, it, it wasn't quite adding up. And, you know, having different messages sent back from my campaign manager and, uh, my friends up the count, it was all, it was sounding really, really positive, and then it wasn't. Um, so I turned up at half past two to be told that it was ridiculously close, but before I'd lost. I jumped on by the press for an interview to then be told, well, they think you've won. Uh, of course, you can't really redo an interview when it's when it's live at that point. Um, and if I, I think it was about half past three when they they announced the result and. To be fair, it probably took about three or four days to truly sink in and being being down in Westminster for those days and you know suffering death by PowerPoint, it probably wasn't until the Queen's speech and somehow being well four or five people behind the Prime Minister and the Speaker as a working class lad from, from the Northwest standing in the House of Lords. You know, I couldn't really hear the Queen speak, but I could see her speak. I'm not sure it was a very good speech. But that's when it stopped, stopped being surreal and all of a sudden kind of yeah, it hit you in the face with, oh my God, I'm, I'm actually here. Mm. Um, and then we rose for recess and uh, I, I was ill. Um, it, I think it was one of those of uh, the equivalent of freshers, flu, exhaustion and everything just all of a sudden hitting you. So yeah, it was, 
fundamental change that night, a paradigm shift for British politics. And like I said, winning seats we'd never heard of, winning seats that I had heard of and never thought we'd ever have a, a Conservative councillor, let alone a Conservative member of Parliament there. It's, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting night and it's, you know, it's going to make for a very interesting Parliament. The Conservative Party went into the 2019 general election with a very clear purpose to get Brexit done and to defeat Jeremy Corbyn. But since both of those things have now been done, what does the Conservative Party stand for? Well, I, I, as I've said in, in quite a few uh, different pieces, you know, we, we talk about levelling up, we talk about building back better, and yes, they're very important messages, but I've remembered my sound bites. It's, it's a very good policy, it's a very good idea, but what are the meat on the about? What does it actually look like? What does it actually mean? Because levelling up in... Very is completely different to say levelling up in Altrincham or levelling up in, in Lancashire or levelling up in Cumbria. So it's different within the same region. Regions are going to be vastly different. So, I mean, when you try to compare what we want in GM as opposed to what Devon and Cornwall want, it can't be a one-size-fits-all policy. And, you know, the policy can't just be here, have some money. So in terms of levelling up, like I said, for me, it's, it's education. If, if we can't point in four years' time and say, Actually, these children have a better life chance. You know, their chance of health inequalities is lower than than before. Then, you know, not only will we fail the mission of leveling up, we've arguably failed the country. Um, so that, that's arguably where, where we are now. Yes, the whole get Brexit done thing is is in the past now. I think there's a lot going on in terms of in, international trade, and I think Liz Trust did a, a fantastic job with where she was. Um, kind of kind of disappointed, but you know ha- happy that she got promoted because you know I, I think that was a really interesting department for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, you know, we, we want to talk about all, all those other things we campaigned on. Yes, it was a very clear message of defeat Corbyn and get Brexit done, but it was also about getting those police on the street, you know, increasing money into education, getting more doctors and nurses, and these are all things that have still been taking place during COVID. Um, unfortunately, over the last 18 months has been drowned out because of COVID, COVID, COVID. So there, there is still a lot going on. And if anything, it gives us a, a strong opportunity to, you know, to, to actually prove a lot of the naysayers wrong. So when, when they argue regulations would, would be a race to the bottom, well, we can actually be serious and say, well, actually, our employment rights are still strong. If anything, we'll make them better. Um, our animal welfare, we, we say, well, actually, we, we've done this. You know, I'm campaigning strongly on, on banning fur imports so we can be a fur-free Britain. And actually, you know, these are things that people do care about. They not, might not necessarily be uh, conservative ideas, but they are things that the people do care about. And, and that's what we, we need to think. You know, for as much as I hate cliches, you know, when people say you know communication is a two-way street and you one mouth and two ears, use them in that ratio. I think part of the problem, and you know, it's where we got to with Brexit and where we got to in 2019 is, you know, for far too long I think we forgot how to listen. You know, how do we actually deliver what people are wanting as opposed to what we think they want? Um, so it's. Uh, from that side, it's a, a big job for certainly the, the 29 intake uh, of going back and you know, speaking to their constituents. And you know, these are people we've potentially never spoken to before, hearing what they want and, and making sure that those, those voices are, are not only listened to, but they're actually heard. And I, I think we've, we've done a good job as that so far as a new intake. 
uh, we just have a long way to go and, and, and hopefully that can continue. Well, the theme of this year's Conservative Party conference is building back better. And as, as you say, there, the, the Prime Minister has really dedicated his premiership to this idea of levelling up places like Bury and areas primarily across the north of England. But there is a concern that levelling up and build back better, they, they can just become sound bites and political slogans. But do you think renaming the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government to include the term levelling up as happened at the latest cabinet reshuffle will genuinely make a difference? Or do you think it is just making people more aware of that slogan of levelling up? Um, yes and no. I, I don't necessarily think the, the name change will make a difference, but I think the new Secretary of State will. Uh, as, as we all know, with Michael Gove, he is a reformer. He will be someone who will get in, get his hands dirty, and will actually make the change that he wants to see. And, and if that's levelling up, great. We, we couldn't actually ask for a better Secretary of State delivering that. And when, when you've actually had Andy Burnham of the Labour Party conference saying, well, you know, when he shadows a go for education, yeah, they, they would argue something rotten yeah, most weeks because they disagreed what they were coming. But he was actually delivering change. Uh, so you can argue all, all you want about the change, but it's still taking place. And, and we, we actually need that now. You know, there's a lot going on in terms of in terms of planning, and obviously in Greater Manchester, that, that's a big issue. Um, but we do need to find a way to to build the houses the country needs in a sympathetic uh, manner that that doesn't kind of go on green belt, doesn't um, kind of try to circumvent some of the constraints that are already there. So I, I genuinely think it's not necessarily the name change, but the ministerial change that will make a difference. So with that, though, how can the government seriously say it is going to be levelling up all those areas across the Red Wall and indeed across the whole of the UK, when currently the tax burden is at its highest level since the 1960s? And as a consequence of the lockdowns and the pandemic, the national debt is over two trillion pounds. Is the Conservative Party still the party of fiscal responsibility? Um, yes, I, I, I think it is. Um, I mean, it's become an, an incredibly lazy argument from, from the left of if we're fiscally responsible, how come the national debt has increased uh, throughout the 11 years of, of Conservative governments? And oh, it's, it's quite obvious to, to anyone who can look at a uh, economy quickly it's because we had a deficit. And you know, we always said, uh, especially during those coalition years and, and the formative Cameron years, that we were there to tackle the deficit so that we could start dealing with the debt. And you can't deal with debt whilst you're still paying out more than, than you're bringing in, in in terms of tax revenue. Um, so I, I think there is still the, the aspiration to get back to that point, whilst also realising that actually after 11 years, there isn't necessarily a big appetite to go back into austerity. Uh, so I'm, I'm not anyone who particularly likes a tax increase, but with the backlog we've got in terms of uh, the NHS and you know, there was a backlog before, there's a, a monstrous backlog now because of all, all the elective treatments uh, that have been cancelled and you know, the cancer treatments that have been cancelled. We need to bring that, that back down to a manageable level because otherwise people will be dying. Uh, people will be suffering pain that they don't need to. Um, so it, it's, it's right that we did that. Uh, you know, it's right that we are talking about social care. I, I think for me, my, my concern wasn't necessarily the, the increase. It was doing the increase without seemingly having a plan. And uh, I, I would love to see what that plan looks like. Um, at the moment, it, I still don't know what, what that is. So I'm not necessarily against you know, more money going to care and the NHS and 
you know, we, we've already thrown a, a lot more money um, since Brexit happened to, to the NHS and we enshrined that in law. But we do need to have a formative plan as to how we can get back on an even keel and actually make meaningful, long-lasting change to, to social care so that you know, people can, can age well and, and be looked after when they do get to that age. And your constituency of Bury South, it's the 10th most marginal seat in the UK and the third most marginal Conservative held seat at the moment. So when the government announces measures like a national insurance rise and potential further COVID-19 restrictions for the winter, how do you try to sell that to your constituents? Um, I'd argue slightly and say it's the fourth most marginal Conservative seat, um, but it depends whether you're measuring by percentage or by number. I'm not going to lie and say it's, it, it's easy. I mean, I I think we've all got to that point of COVID fatigue now and the, the the plan B, if you will, it's not something I'm particularly liking the sound of. You know, the, the COVID passports, I, I was in the chamber and uh, to be blunt, I, I, I rubbished it to the minister and the minister you know, he faced a tough time in that session. Yeah, I, I think from all sides of the house, it was clear that there's no appetite for it. It seems incredibly divisive and discriminatory. And to have that in reserve, you know, it, it, if, if your plan is to get more people to get jabs, fine, say that. Um, but to, to have it almost as a, an invisible stick to beat people with in, in the hope that they get jabs, it didn't sit comfortably with me. Um, the whole plan B, you know, we need to be doing more in terms of flu jabs. Uh, we need to, I mean, the, the booster vaccine programme, fully supportive of it makes sense yeah i think uh, i think it was israel that are already doing it and a lot of other countries are going through the planning stage certainly makes sense and the 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 efficacy if i remember correctly is actually greater once we've had that third job six months after the first two um but going back to some of these restrictions i i don't think there's the public will anymore to to actually back them you know, we we've all you know we've all lost the uh, the desire to wear a face mask, other than um, from a safety perspective. And whilst I well, whilst I have one on my desk here, you know, that that's more for for if someone else wants me to wear it around. And my my personal preference would would be I I I don't particularly like it. Like I said earlier, with beard and glasses, it's not the most comfortable. Um, but for public safety, I, I will do it because it's my duty to do so. But I, I think in, in the wider perspective, you know, all these, uh, you know, the regulations, the lockdowns, I, I don't think there's going to be the support for it anymore. Um, and I, I think the the main opposition for a lot of this has actually come from the Conservative backbenchers rather than the opposition. And if you rely on getting something through with opposition votes, it probably means you're not doing the right thing. And so far, the government hasn't yet committed to giving MPs a vote on whether to introduce this plan B that, uh, based on the current plans stated within this policy paper, would include domestic vaccine passports and mandatory vaccination for certain venues. Do you think there should be a vote in the House of Commons on this? Um, Yeah, I I think it's one of the things we secured through the Speaker uh, quite early on. If I remember, I think it was the first vote we had on renewing the COVID regulations in that we would have a vote every time and you know the the COVID regulations they on your they do need to be voted on if there's a meaningful change we should have a vote we should at least be able to you know look at the data and say well 
you know, if the data supports it, you know, I come from a from a science background, if the data supports it, I might not like it, but at least I can understand it and, and make that argument. But if there's nothing there and no vote, then why, why, why are MPs even there? If, if these are the big things that, you know, the, the big votes of the day, the big topic of discussion, and we're not even in the room, it doesn't sit comfortably with me, it doesn't sit comfortably with many people across the country. So you know, give us a meaningful vote. You know, if it's there, if it's got the data, if we're following the science, and that's all we've been saying all the way through it throughout this process. If we're following the science, it will go through and it should go through. But if we're not, and we're just making a knee-jerk reaction, then you know you will you will face opposition. But either way, that there does need to be a, a meaningful vote. And another aspect of the lockdown isn't just the restrictions on people's lives, but it's also the immense economic impact. And we've touched on this briefly already, but how much of a challenge do you think the government and the Treasury in particular have on just trying to limit the economic impact of the lockdowns? Well, I, I think we've, we've seen it this week alone with, with furlough coming to, to an end. And, you know, I, I think part of the confusion with that is the actual title for furlough wasn't furlough. It was the Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme. And it was to make sure that you actually still had a job to go back to. Um, so for those people that are still furloughed and, you know, we, you know the economy has been reopened now for, for quite a few months, um, I, I fear that they already are redundant. They, they just don't know it yet. Um, you know, if it was to be extended as, as Labour are calling for, how long would it be extended for? You know, what, what prospect would the business have to pay for it? In terms of universal credit, I, I think it's the, the right decision at the wrong time. And you know, it, it could quite easily be extended to the end of a tax year or, or even tapered off um, slowly as, as opposed to, right, we, we get to October just as, you know, we've got the, the issue over fuel, um, you know, we've got gas price increases, uh, you know, inflation is going up because of it. It just feels like it's the wrong time, um, you know, when, you know to, to, get, to actually keep it is, what, £6 billion a year. So all of a sudden, it's not twenty pound a week from you know from your neighbour or constituent's pocket. It's six billion pounds, and when factored in with all the other changes that have been proposed, you know, could come up to nine point five billion pounds just for universal credit. And it's about trying to find that right balance. And you know, compromise isn't a dirty word, and I say this many times. Although it seems when it's a compromise, people don't like it is dirty. Um, it's right that we view this from another, from another, from the view of the treasury and the economy. Um, it's no longer just a health issue; it's a, a wider societal one. And I think whilst the Department of Health drew things uh, very strongly moving, you know, in the early stages of COVID, we now need to you know sit back and and actually see well what the longer term implications are if if we do go back to this, if we do have to go back to a lockdown or heaven forbid, a, a local lockdown as we have been in Greater Manchester since what, the 31st of July from last year. You know, we do need to be thinking of this from an economy, from a sector perspective. And you know, hospitality alone, I think it's going to be two years before they before you recover. Mm. Now, what that's going to be like for, for other sectors you know, could, could even be worse. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we have to do it, but we have to strike that right balance. And I think Rishi, again, is broadly going in the right direction. But it's just how, how public health England and, uh, and some of the science factors into that. And, you know, unfortunately, it's uh, above my pay grade. And you know, we'll, we'll see what those reports come back and say. 
Well, the Chancellor is going to be delivering an autumn budget and spending review in about four weeks' time. And a number of your Red Wall colleagues have this week called on Rishi Sunak to cut business rates in order to retain a number of those hard-won seats from 2019. What, what are you hoping to hear the Chancellor announce at that big speech? I, I'd like to say quite a few things, actually. Um, I, I think in terms of the super deduction that came through in the spring budget, that was a game changer. And part of the issue was it's not fully been explained, but you know, the investment into our research, our developments, you know, our, our actual skills, that's huge. But if we could find a way to link that in with apprenticeships, with T-levels, uh, with our young people and employment, that could be actually a, a, a real long-term educational plan. And that's the difference we want. You know, it's, it's not a case of um, just, I, I guess, like we were saying earlier, here's some money, go, go spend it where you want. If we can actually get people in good quality jobs early on, you know, that's social mobility, that's leveling up. That's what we, we really need to be aiming for. Um, fully support the call for a change to, to business rates. And I think when we... I've spoken about the high streets for, and trying to find a way a way to regenerate it. A lot of that comes down to business rates, and uh, I, I think that ties in very closely with the hospitality sector. It's one thing trying to change business rates for, for shops, but if you're not changing business rates for your pubs, which are next door, then you're making it much more difficult for them, for them to survive, and ultimately the, the pub is the heart of the community. Um, so whether it's a, a differential duty rating, so it's uh, promoting a, a more responsible drinking um, within a pub or, or bar as opposed to cheap drink from the off-trade in your supermarket. That's something I'd be supportive of. Business rates, again, or, or actually extending the VAT holiday uh, would go a long way to actually helping some of these businesses get back on their feet. Um, so I think between that and, uh, and investing a lot more in, in actually in early years education um, because we, we've spoken about schools, we've spoken about FE, we've spoken about universities, but if we get a child's educational career right early on, then that sets them up for the rest of their educational uh, pathway. And you know, if, if anything, from uh, the most brutal fiscal conservative, it, it could well be a, a cost saving because you don't need as intensive an intervention in year 11 just to get them to scrape a pass when you can actually deliver a meaningful change much earlier on in a child's career. It's, it's all about intervention, but the, the personal one to me would be actually making sure there's um, clear pathways and, and treatment um, for, for addiction services. Um, it's been spoken a lot about in terms of mental health support, but actually me mental health issues you know, do affect addiction. Um, so I'd, I'd like to see a lot more focus being, being put there as well. And you, you serve on the House of Commons Education Select Committee, and you've mentioned some of the main focus areas from your perspective as well on early years, on T-levels. But overall, more broadly, what do you see as the most important part in getting children, students, young people caught up after the lockdowns forced the schools, to, schools and colleges to close? I, I actually had a meeting about this uh, two days ago. And yes, it's great that... In principle, there's a catch-up program and it's focusing on the, the academic attainment uh, and what's been missed out. But I, I think there's a few things we, we need to potentially change. One is the language we're using. If we keep on telling children that they've missed out on education, that they are losing out, then the, the impact it has on them in terms of their anxiety, their mental health, and this is for, for children as, as soon as four, 
that, that's going to have a detrimental impact and probably make catching up harder. We do need to be thinking more about the behavioural side, the mental health side. Um, we can't just say, well, here's some extra money for the schools, you deal with it from your pastoral side. Um, I, I think the meaningful uh, change we can try to make is investing in more educational uh, psychiatrists um, and, and actually making sure that every school ha has access to one because that's going to be the game change. Uh, we, you know, the stigma of mental health is, is now gone, but actually access to mental health services is, is probably harder now than, than it ever has been. Uh, so that, that's probably a big thing I'd like to see in the change to the, the catch-up program. Uh, we, there's a lot of talk about potentially extending the school day and, and that could actually go some way to, to levelling up as well because you know, there's a lot of parents out there who are potentially in part-time work to, to fit around childcare arrangements before and after school. And all, all of a sudden, if you're extending the school day or, or making um, you know, before and after school clubs almost mandatory, you are finding a way for parents to get back into full-time um, meaningful employment. And, and that could also be a, a game changer in terms of the economy, but of their own skill development and training. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of for, for children, early years is key. T-levels and further education is, is really going to be driving forward very quickly. And you know, we're, we're one year old now. Um, seeing a, an expansion in the courses available, I expect that to continue. And yeah, I declare an interest as being the chairman for the APBG on T, T levels. Um, but yeah, I, I think we need to be doing a, a lot more in, in terms of the, the mental health side in, in schools, um, not only for children but for teachers, um, because for a provision, um, a profession, sorry, that's probably already been stretched in, in terms of the, the job we do to then having to factor in hybrid lessons marking for uh, teacher assessed grades, potentially how stretch from beyond breaking point. And when we're asking them to now look out for mental health of their children, who's looking after their mental health? Yeah. Moving away from that slightly, what I suppose if, if you can say a benefit, but one of the benefits the lockdown has provided is showing how important globally technology and innovation has been, and especially with education and facilitating that remote learning. How do you think, as, as we leave the pandemic, as we leave lockdowns behind, how do you think schools can better utilise technology in teaching? I, I, I think in terms of the, the utilising of technology, it, it actually is it, a double-edged sword. Um, honestly, it's a position we, we never thought we'd, we'd find ourselves in, and it should never become a replacement to teaching. Hmm. But it does open up avenues that we've probably not had before. So, you know, if it means you can get a, a, you know, a university lecture or uh, you know an expert in a field a member of parliament um, or, or anyone actually being able to you know speak to a school you know via zoom as, as we are now then actually that's creating opportunities that probably weren't there before or if they were they were limited to to one day a week and you know a struggle to arrange them at the best of times to, to actually just be able to, to do it you know as, as easy as we are now that opens up a lot, lot of opportunities and whether it's professors from from chemistry or you know poets or any you know, those opportunities are going to grow drastically and that can only be a positive thing um but you know i guess it, it will allow you know schools and children to share best practice at, at the same time and you know if it's you know furthering language skills and actually being able to speak to foreign students and foreign schools you know 
technology and progression isn't wrong. You know, it's it's probably been shied away from for, for quite a while because people haven't understood it. And now after 18 months, you know, we all understand it now, um, despite the fact that many times we're still reminded to unmute, which clearly means he failed as a human being. Um, but yeah, it's it just seems a, a natural evolution now to what more can we do and you know, whether it's greater use of programs in terms of phonics. You know, there's a lot of investment and a lot of research going in at the moment. It's kind of a very exciting time. Um, so it's, we'll, we'll see where that goes. And, you know, there are quite a few parliamentary committees uh, kind of looking into that. And, you know, I think I'm a, a member of most of them. Um, but, yeah, it will be a, a very interesting time in, in the next few months and, and years, I think. As a result of this, there, has, there have been a, a number of calls to actually look at increasing the role of the private sector within education as the pandemic has quite drastically changed the needs of the market at the moment. Do you think there should be more input by the private sector within the education system? I I, I don't think the private sector is is the bad guy. I, I think for, for a lot, it's seen as academies are wrong because it's private sector and money should be focused on, on, on children. And I, I think it's a, a very lazy view as to what academies are. Um, I, I think if we can get business leaders, um, football clubs even, um, actually speaking to, to schools and to children, you know, there's a lot of information that can be shared and you know, actually to, to better uh, the education system. We just need to be willing to engage. Uh, there are quite a few schools uh, who do that already. And when, when you think at actually a lot of training organisations or, or charities uh, are actually really happy to engage with schools, but you know, that needs to be a two-way process. Um, you know, but there's a lot we can do. There's there's a lot of schools who you know want to make partnerships, and and they can do. Um, we just need to not be shy. You know, push forward, and you know, providing it doesn't negatively impact any child's education, then why shouldn't the private sector be involved? You know, but we're involved in in aspects of the education sector already. You know, I, I don't see that as a, as a bad thing. And to finish, I'd like to bring our conversation back to just looking a bit more at the party conference. And the Prime Minister will give his speech to the conference on Wednesday. What would you like to hear from him? I'd, I'd, I'd like, I'd, I, I guess, like, like I said in, in, my, in my opening comment, I'd, I'd like to get an understanding as to, to where we're actually going now. You know, yeah, yes, COVID has pretty, pretty much uh, not necessarily knocked us off course, but put, put a, a roadblock in the way and... Now, now that we're, we're talking about building back better and leveling up, what will that actually look like? What will that mean to not only the country, but to the party as well? Um, so I, I think we've become incredibly divided in the last six years, whether that's over uh, Brexit, with policy politics becoming much more tribal and uh, actually politics within the party uh, becoming you know, quite heavily divided over COVID. What can we actually do to unite society, deliver the the manifesto pledges that we said and yes we, we've had to either postpone or, or break some of it so what can we do to get back on track what can we do to deliver the people's priorities and what can we actually do to meaningfully level up the country and our regions and uh, and if he if he wants to uh, talk about Barry South I'm more than happy for him to do so um, and I, I will certainly uh, continue to invite him uh, across here but you know for the red wall seats for the blue wall seats we need to speak for the entire nation and you know if, if we are a one nation party and I, I truly hope that we still are you know it's, it's what we can do to stay united and, and keep the union okay christian wakeford thank you very much for coming on the show no problem Nathan.